Today we have with us Kim Putlin, who has written a remarkable treatise on Alfred Hitchcock's spy and espionage genre movies, integrating the current world events into the treatment of the unfolding of the stories in these special movies. Kim, Tom, and I welcome you to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful that somebody found my thesis and <laughs> enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic, actually. It was. Yeah, and we're very, very happy to talk to you because the, you had some good stuff in there. Yeah, we've done oh, we've done podcast episodes on about eight Hitchcock movies so far, spy movies, <laughs> and we'll continue to do so because they're fascinating movies and they're intriguing spy movies. Dan, we don't have many to go. <laughs> no, we don't. Your work really takes a look at Hitchcock movies from an angle that we really like here at SpyMovieNavigator.com and our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. We always like to explore how real-world events can work their way into the spy movies or what other external influences in the world, social norms, political intrigue, war, etc., find their way into the movies, too. You have created a fascinating look into the Hitchcock spy movie classics from exactly this perspective, how the events in the real world were treated and sometimes not treated intentionally in the Hitchcock classics and as it all relates to the English and American societies. So tell us how you got so interested in Alfred Hitchcock movies and how this thesis, this work of yours, came about. Sure, but I have to kind of go back to uh, when I was in high school and I was kind of discovering becoming sort of like a cinephile. Um, my my dad really liked watching Turner Classic movies. And, ah, okay. Uh, <laughs> and then at the time I was just really curious about like watching pretty much anything I could and one day Psycho was on so I watched it and I really enjoyed it and okay. then kind of like dived headfirst into Hitchcock so I really came to love his work and appreciate him as a director and so I always kind of had him in the back of my mind but then I have to kind of fast forward to when I entered college so I attended the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Mm -hmm. I majored in history and I double minored in museum studies in French and with the history major all the students who declare the major are required to do a senior thesis. It's a semester-long project where you select a topic, you have to research it, and you work with the faculty advisor throughout the whole semester, wow. and then it culminates into like a 40 to 50 page thesis. So the idea is that it's supposed to prepare you if you're planning on going into uh, higher academia, like obtaining a master's or a PhD, and also um, just kind of recognizing all the work that you've been working up to throughout mm -hmm. your history major career at the school. It could be about anything, but it kind of had to be like small enough to fit within 40 to 50 pages. It couldn't be too broad. And I kind of knew I wanted to do something with movies, but I wasn't really sure what. And so the summer before I was going to write it, I ended up watching, I don't know if many people really know this movie, but it's a movie called Hitchcock. It's a biopic from 2012. Okay. It stars Anthony Hopkins as uh, <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock and Helen Mirren as his wife, Alma. Yeah. And it's specifically about the making of Psycho, so it details that process. And I just decided to throw it on during the summer. And there's a scene early on where he's just coming off the high of North by Northwest, doing really well. And he's looking for his next movie to direct. He's wondering, what do I do? I, I don't have any ideas. And Alma says, well, I hear that they are going to make an adaptation of those Ian Fleming James Bond movies. Why don't you direct one of those? <laughs> and he says, I already directed a James Bond movie. It was North by Northwest. <laughs> and <it was> kind <laughs> of like lit a light bulb in me. And I was thinking, wait a second. That's actually really interesting. And so I spoke to my faculty advisor about it, yeah. and she loved the idea. So I pretty much kind of looked through his filmography and saw, well, he's directed 14 spy movies. That's a genre he frequently went to. And I noticed that even though they get talked about a lot individually, they weren't really being discussed collectively. And so that's kind oh. of where it just started. Yeah, that's great. That's a great story. Yeah. It That's is. super. So we want to turn it over to you to talk about each of the Hitchcock spy movies. We're going to start with the 1934 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much. 
And we'll take it all the way through the 1969 Topaz to get your perspective and the way you were looking at these movies when you were writing your thesis. Yeah. So how do these things kind of interrelate with each other as well, if there's anything you can talk about that? And comment on how you broke it up into the decades, the 30s and 40s and, and pre-World War II and World War II stuff with uh, the U.S. and England. Yeah, so at first I looked at the decades specifically just because that made the most sense to me to break it up chronologically mm-hmm. because in the 30s he's still in the U.K., so most of those movies are actually spy movies and then he moves to america in 1940s he has a handful there and then he kind of tapers off in the 50s and 60s but he's still like they're still really uh, high budget important movies especially uh north by northwest and the man who knew too much the remake i noticed as i was dividing them in this chronological order that themes were occurring as well so it made sense for the 1930s and the 1940s to be very similar, even though they're on opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean, Mm -hmm. they're still addressing a lot of the same themes. Just in the 30s, it's very British ideas. And then in the 40s, it was very American ideas. And then with the 50s and the 60s, you know, now the world has entered this Cold War. And how does he grapple with the changed landscape and how those themes kind of still take like a kind of a pro-American stance, but ultimately ambiguous at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was noticing that even though like, yes, they are divided into these four decades, there's like two main like sides of the coin for these movies. Yeah, so, it definitely so, has some, some ambiguity in the who the enemy is in some of the movies and, and all that kind of thing. So. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, so I was going to ask, so in The Man Who Knew Too Much, which was his first one, (laughs) there's a fact that you talk about that we didn't catch. We we did an episode on on The Man Who Knew Too Much, although we combined the two of them into one episode. But you talk about something there that we didn't catch when we did that, and that's about the shootout at the end of the 1934 version of the movie. Yeah. And can you talk to us a little bit about that and where they got that idea and kind of how it ties into real world stuff? Sure. So Hitchcock actually described it himself. Um, One of the sources I was looking at was his interviews with uh, the French director, Francois Truffaut, from the 70s. And he just pretty much broke down pretty much every movie in his career. And he mentioned specifically this uh, siege in 1911, which I think he would have been about like 12, 13 years old when that happened. And even though a few years later or 20 years later, he is directing a movie, I kind of think that he must have had that in the back of his mind that there was this anarchist shootout that happened years ago, but those were still kind of common uh, tensions in the 30s. Even though the new threat was more the fascism and uh, Nazism of Germany and Italy. Soviet Union was still doing pretty well for itself. It was brand new and communism and anarchism, even though they were a little bit of a threat of the earlier part of the 20th century, they they were still in the back of people's minds. Mm -hmm. And I think this was like a weird not necessarily weird, but just a a moment for Hitchcock to kind of play upon the headlines and utilize that into telling this story. Okay. Yeah. And what was the name of the siege? Did we mention the name of the siege? In your paper, you called it the Siege of Sydney Street of 1991. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's it's not like a super well-known period in history. It, It was just like briefly mentioned in those interviews that he had. And I went digging through newspaper archives to find it. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So if anybody wants to look that up, it's Siege of Sydney Street of 1911 in London, huh? Yes, exactly. Well, hey, it works its way into a Hitchcock movie. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to move on to 39 steps. But before we do that, Kim, we want to ask you, in your work, when you created this, you had an overall theme to this that tied all of these Hitchcock espionage movies together. Can you talk a minute about that before we move on to the 39 steps? 
Yes. So the whole point of my thesis was that it's not supposed to be film analysis. It's meant to be historical research. Mm -hmm. And even though the movies are the primary sources themselves, it's kind of hard to not analyze them in a more literary sense. But mostly I was trying to see, well, how do they reflect the periods and times that they were set in? And I noticed that they are definitely alluding to, if not outright stating certain themes or moments in history for what is now history, but for them was the present. But I think ultimately Hitchcock is not really interested in trying to sway one person or the other. I think he was more interested in telling a compelling story. Mm -hmm. He just used these ideas that were floating around to tell that story because that's what people knew. That's what audiences wanted to see or occasionally maybe influence them a little bit just to think differently. Not quite propaganda, but kind of that like idea of just perpetuating certain ideals. And ultimately I never really saw Hitchcock as a very political director, even though he clearly has his heroes and his villains especially when we get towards the, the Cold War movies, yes. at the end of the day, he still views them as people, and it's really a, a human struggle than, than it is a political struggle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems like that's a lot in, in, in your work, too, that you talk about the responsibility of the civilians to each other, to the government, what their role is in being moral to each other, to the government, mm-hmm. to the whatever. And it seems like the more Hitchcock went on towards the later movies, like you're saying in the Cold War movies, that the enemy became a little clearer. And even Hitchcock went along with that. That <laughs> Yes, and like in The Man Who Knew Too Much, the, uh, the 1934 version, they're definitely coded to be evil. Like Peter Lorre, yes. he... He talks and sounds and looks very foreign, but they never outright say where he's from. We're definitely supposed to get the intention, like, well, they're definitely some kind of Eastern European block. So we can only assume the Soviet Union are one of those satellite states, but it's never outright said. And on one hand, we could determine, well, that's because they weren't allowed to. But we could also think, well, that's not the point either. The point is ultimately this specific instance rather than all the larger politics surrounding it. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. Let's look at the 39 steps then. And this seems to be, it seems to have some kind of a little political bent here. You mentioned it's political ambiguity in in your work. Can you discuss the ambiguity here and how... Hitler's actions may have influenced maybe this movie because, again, they are not specifically saying anything about Hitler here, I don't think, right? Mm-hmm. So it's ambiguous, but there's something in there. <laughs> yes. So on one hand, Hitler is now Chancellor of Germany, and that's when these tensions are creeping up and it's going to occur all throughout the decade until war officially breaks out. So Britain is aware of this, and they need to kind of gear up the citizens to get ready for war for when it does happen, because it's not a question of staving it off. It's a question of when is it going to happen? We need to be prepared. And I think that's kind of what the main throughway is of the 39 Steps, where you have all these people coming to the aid of uh, Hannah and how they're, they're just like common British folk that like they're not very wealthy. They're not like special gentlemen. They're just like farmers and mm-hmm. uh, urban dwellers who are just there to help him as needed. And it's kind of giving this idea of we need to help, the, uh, help each other so that we can fight the enemy. But at the same time, because they're not outright saying where these villains are coming from or what the real threat is, there's still this underlying idea of 
at the end of the day, this is just what we should be doing, period, regardless of the political situation. Okay, so you, I like the fact that you say regardless <laughs> of the political situation, because you talk in your thesis about the speech, the political speech that <laughs> Hannah has to give yeah. when he's in that rally or whatever. That and he's you making it all up as he's going along. And he's but. making it up. <laughs> but it definitely had a political flair to it, kind of. So you know, talk, you know, because you t- you mentioned that Hitchcock doesn't tend to take sides. You know, was was Hanny talking out of both sides of his mouth, or mm. what do you think he was doing there? I I've always interpreted that scene as Hanny at the end of the day, even though he's he's making it up as he goes along, and he he's just trying to stall for time yeah. so that he doesn't get caught. He's also being very earnest at the same time, where yeah. he acknowledges that people have been helping him, and he he understands that people have really come up to his aid, even though he's a complete stranger. He's not in. He's not from the United Kingdom. He's he's Canadian, yeah. and there is definitely like a slight political bent, but it's I I've always interpreted it as like a very centrist. We need to come together, sort okay. of approach, rather than this side is bad and my side is good oh, okay. at the end of the day. That's good insight. Yeah, he... We could use some of that today. We could, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I see it as more just a scene where he's he recognizes that even though there is a, a political organization out to get him, the it's really all about making those bridges and having a community to support one another. Okay. Yeah, that same theme seems to come through in multiple Hitchcock movies that we're going to be talking about here, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, uh, it's good, and Robert Donat was just absolutely terrific. All right, so let's take a look now at Secret Agent. That's one of our favorite movies. We liked Secret Agent a lot, 1936, which we think gives us a more direct political bent maybe than some of the other Hitchcock movies. To us, this seemed like an anti-German propaganda movie that was pretty well done. Why do you think Hitchcock changes his pattern here, or does he? And maybe here there's a little call-out for for a political enemy here, it seems. Yeah, so again, Hitler's still still gearing up. He's showing his aggression. Germany is... Uh, really trying to assert its dominance, and Britain's trying to, again, just try to gear up and prepare for war. Inevitable, and yeah. So Hitchcock sets it to World War One, and it's, I see it more as a reminder to the British audience that we're going to go to war at some point in the near future with Germany, but don't worry, because we already beat them once before. We can do it again. Yeah. All right. That- kind of how I interpreted it. Mm-hmm. And especially because that was just 20 years in the past for them. Yeah, It's yeah. very fresh for a lot of people that who might be having these anxieties about an impending war with Germany get some kind of reassurance that they've, they've beat Germany in the past. They're able to do it again. Oh, that's and good. So there's definitely a more anti-German stance in this. And I think it's made explicitly just by being set in World War One. Yeah. Otherwise, it could have been set at almost any other point, and it probably wouldn't have been as blatant. Mm-hmm. But I still think Hitchcock is still trying to put more human morality at the front and center. It's just the background mm-hmm. gives a little more flavor at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of conflict within the movie, too, when they're supposed to kill the spy mm-hmm. in the mountains there, and or should they do it or not, and and then Ashenden is thinking, should I? Or, or... Yeah, it's like a, a whole moral quandary where uh, his fake wife, yes. she's in it for the, for the glory, the fun, and he criticizes her for that. He's yeah, like, yeah. you think this is all a game? We're talking about people's lives are at line. Yeah, but then yeah. when he's faced with that question, she she parrots that back at him and says, you might be murdering somebody. Doesn't that bother you? And to me, that that's ultimately the thrust of the story is what what is the point of supporting our country if it means hurting people at the end of the day? 
Yeah, that was a question there for sure, yeah. without doubt, and it was yeah. brought out rather specifically in that movie. So there is a lot with the moral judgments of people and their commitment to the government, and their commitment to each other, and their commitment to the moral community, and that's those are tough. Those are tough uh, conversations and tough thoughts to have. So pretty good. Yeah. Dan, you're talking about the moral and the morals in the community and everything. And then Kim, you in your thesis though, you skip sabotage and jump to the lady vanishes. So can you tell mm-hmm. us why did you skip sabotage? Cause I think you said somewhere you didn't think it fit your thesis. So can you talk a little bit about why? Yeah. So in hindsight, like now that I'm older and I've kind of haven't really looked at my thesis in a while, In hindsight, I probably could have talked about it, but at the time I was thinking it doesn't really quite fit into the the narrative of Germany's mounting up. It was definitely a a movie that seems to be more focused on Russians and um, the Soviet Union and communism. And I kind of chalked this up a little bit more to just myself trying to figure out and ultimately not being able to see how can I like weave this into my argument. And at the time I just couldn't. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. and also because there was just mo- most of his spy movies were not, not necessarily most of them, but like what five or six spy movies from the thirties. And then only like, it, it just gets like smaller and smaller with each decade. I, I was like worried about time. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. You had to fit it in the right number of pages, right? <laughs> yeah, I had to. I had to cut somewhere, and yeah, okay, that I, makes sense. I did end up cutting that one. That's um, fair. Yeah. I also I didn't mention this in the paper at all, but I did watch Lifeboat for this movie or for this thesis. Yeah, yeah. And I I loved Lifeboat. I really enjoyed it, but I didn't feel like I could uh, put that in either. Just because I didn't really see it as a spy movie, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, even though I would say that's arguably a more anti-German propaganda piece than any of them, yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah. But it just didn't quite fit as a spy movie either. Okay, so we we skip over sabotage and we hit the one of I really like this one. One of the more fun, in my opinion, Hitchcock movies, <laughs> yeah. The Lady Vanishes, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of humor in here. But one of the things that we look at, you know, we, we've talked about in a bunch of our episodes, are censorship from the different, you know, from the different movie rating companies or whatever or agencies. And so, how did the British film industry censorship shape the, I don't know, political or, or apolitical? I don't know how you want to look at it. Aspects of this movie, The Lady Vanishes. And sure. what was the political environment it was trying to showcase from your perspective? This is 1938. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, and I don't remember if this came up in my research, if the um, UK had a Hayes Code equivalent. Yes. I'm not positive, but from what I gathered, they were, I think they were a, little, a tiny bit, not much, but a tiny bit more lenient. And they wanted to be more explicit in their political tones, especially because it is at at that time, it was still an imperialist power. And so, especially when you have an impending war with Germany on the horizon and you're just waiting for the shoe to drop on that, they wanted to prepare their citizens for this war. And whether it was, a conscious decision or not, they saw film as an opportunity to do that. And I think just in these few movies alone, Hitchcock, again, whether he consciously did this or not, kind of recognized that. And you see the evolution of it in these movies from The Man Who Knew Too Much all the way to The Lady Vanishes, where it's almost very, very apolitical and it like slowly gets a little more political over time while still maintaining mm-hmm. enough distance to okay. not have a very overtly political message yeah. at the center. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the train battle at the end is, <laughs> is pretty, pretty kind of specific, but not specific. Again, you don't know who the enemy exactly is and yeah. where, 
where it's all going with that. So it's, yeah, I I think he I I don't know if Hitchcock ever really said anything outright, but I I do get the impression that he certainly had his allegiances and he he was going to show it some somehow just in a in an entertaining fashion. Mm-hmm. Well, he did there. <laughs> Yeah, he did. I mean, The Lady Vanishes is, is a great. It's a great movie for in in every way. It's just a fun movie. You 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 do get to laugh a little bit. Michael Redgrave was great. The whole the whole movie is a little lighter than most Hitchcock movies. Yep, <laughs> but it's still a serious theme. Yep, and the tension. So and good. The, always, you got to have that tension. It's good. Let's go to the USA for some of the movies. Like Foreign Correspondent is a great movie. You talk about this movie longer than most of the other movies in in your work, and you talk about the propaganda of the movie and and the hotel sign and so on, which is kind of cool. You know, I want to talk about that a little bit. So, can you share some of that with our listeners? Yeah. Uh, so, Foreign Correspondent was probably I wouldn't say it's my favorite Hitchcock movie. That's North by Northwest. So I was really excited I got to watch that for this one. But I think it was the most fun to analyze for this thesis because I think it was the closest to a propaganda piece that you could get in all of these movies. And even uh, Joseph Goebbels himself outright said that foreign correspondent was like a great piece of allied propaganda. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) (laughs) I think if the master of uh, German propaganda says that, that that must say something about your movie. (laughs) Um, Is that high praise, low praise? I'm not exactly sure. (laughs) I I don't know, but he, he really thought that was like a a masterpiece of of a propaganda piece. Mm. So I, I had a lot of fun really dissecting this one just because it's so odd how the movie started production or was at least in production before war in Europe had officially started. And yet somehow it predicted the the air raids of London because just a few days after it actually premiered, then Germany started their air raids on London and the film ends with air raids on London. Yeah. Very oddly prophetic in how all of that, happened and Hitchcock and his screenwriter recognized that at the same time. So they were able to take a very pressing issue, which is impending war in Europe and turn it into this piece. That's like very intriguing. There's still a few laughs in it. And yet mm-hmm. try to really stir an American perspective to support war in Europe. And I think like the, the hotel sign scene is probably the, the best indicator of that, apart from the ending. Mm-hmm. Joel McRae, he's trying to escape, and he decides to climb out the window, and then he is at the rooftop, and the sign says Hotel Europe. But then the E and the L burn out, and it says Hot Europe. <laughs> yeah, doesn't he bump into them or something? I think he. Right? I, I think he bumps into them. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they, it's been a while since. I've yeah, seen it's, it. it's but, hot Europe. Oh man! But I think that's just like as blatant as you can possibly get without actually saying something because yeah. it's all visual. Yeah, <laughs> so, but when you you're when you're watching it too, I mean, if you're not paying attention, you kind of miss that really. But mm-hmm. when when you finally realize it, you go, "Oh boy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty straightforward there." Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the like the final scene too, where uh, Robert Cummings is at the top of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, and he like he wants to help the German. Like he doesn't want the German to fall to his death, so he like tries to help them. But yeah. at the end of the day, the the German falls to his death from the Statue of Liberty. Like Please. even though it's like very typical Hitchcock to have these landmarks as like climactic moments. I, I think there's definitely a lot to be said where the climactic scene is at the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, yeah. The beacon of, like, American hope and prosperity. So there's definitely, like, again, this human morality coming into it because he doesn't intend to kill this guy, but he 
as in able to help him. And yeah. so he promised to his death at mm. the feet of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's a great scene. It's a great scene. It is. Now, and it's toward, it's at the end. Yep. So let's talk then about Notorious, where in your thesis you talk about the fact that most of the political stuff in that movie is in the first 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so why do you think the political elements stop after the first half hour or so? I think with Notorious, especially when you have Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, Hitchcock got way more interested in the the romantic intrigue. <laughs> and <laughs> okay. the, the political undertones are all foundational. And so they need to set up this romantic drama. But at the end of the day, the movie is about this romantic drama between Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, and Claude Rains. And it just sets the tension. So it's setting up a lot so that we know who to root for and who not to support. But even if we take out those 30 minutes, you can kind of still get an idea of who are we supposed to be supporting and why like why don't we want Claude Rains to be with Ingrid Bergman? We want Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman to be together, but they have like their own personal struggles that they need to yeah. overcome. And I think Hitchcock just really preferred that, especially when <laughs> the war is over. It's still fresh in everybody's minds, but it's over now. And there, it still looms, but I kind of see it as like a little bit of a, we can move on from this. And this story is an opportunity to do that. Yeah, that's a good angle. I I think that's a a good analysis. You do have the seriousness of what they're trying to do with the, in the wine cellar with uranium, uranium, with the the uranium. But then you do have this love story. And you're right, you kind of, you kind of feel bad for Claude Rains in a sense because you think, oh, geez, you know, he's getting, He's getting kind of manipulated every which way from every side. And yeah, he, he is. He's played every way. Yeah. Possibly. And he is. But then, you know, you're also on, you can't help but be to be on, on the side that you think is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the side with uh, stopping these guys from maybe creating another war. So to go further with this, you quote uh, film scholar Sam P. Simone, uh, who says that he believes that Notorious is Hitchcock's appraisal of the American democracy and how the institutional maintained peace in the post-war global society. But right after you say that, you give a contrarian view by film historian Nora Gilbert. So can you kind of talk through that a little bit? Yeah, so Sam Simone, I believe the book that I found of his was a a thesis dissertation of his that got turned into a book. And his whole argument was that uh, Hitchcock's war movies specifically, not necessarily spy, but all the, all the movies that he made like during World War II, so that would include Rebecca and The Shadow of a Doubt. He said that all those movies are propaganda pieces in one way or the other. And to an extent, I understood where he was coming from, but I didn't really agree with the overlying idea that this was very intentional of Hitchcock because he was a secret activist based on all my other research. He wasn't, he didn't really seem like the activist type. He was a storyteller and that was what he was first and foremost. Mm-hmm. The politics just kind of uh, fell into his lap because of what was going on. And Nora Gilbert as a, a feminist historian, she, she really counters that. And I don't, I don't think she was talking to uh, Simone directly, but she recognizes that Alicia or uh, Ingrid Bergman's character is ultimately a pawn in this story. And her value is, is her body and her sexuality. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of discussed in the film as well that she doesn't want to do this. She wants to be with Devlin and, she, she begs him to not have her do this. And you can tell that even Devlin is really conflicted, but he's still loyal to the United States government, his employer, and sees that this is ultimately the best thing to do. And so 
she's just devastated that he won't even admit that this is wrong and she ends up going with it but not because she feels like it's the right thing to do but just because at that point in the movie she doesn't really have anything else to do and Gilbert's really trying to show that definitely in this instance for sure but in like I would say other especially when we get later into these spy movies this is where like that post-war criticism starts to appear where Hitchcock is really looking at now, now we need to be distrustful of our own government, not necessarily on a paranoia communism threat that we see later, but just now starting to question what did we just go through? And is it always good to just support our government for the sake of supporting our government? Sometimes they do very questionable things, and we need to address that. Yeah. So it's a great movie, Notorious. Uh, whether people have seen it yet or not, they should see it. If you've seen it, watch it again. It's just a terrific movie all around, acting, story-wise, everything. It's terrific. That was a nice analysis, Kim. So yes, the, Notorious kind of finishes off his wartime espionage thrillers, which are among the least politically ambiguous films from these movies an American civilian's duty is perceived as upholding of democracy and liberty with well, you were, kinds of things you were just talking about while the world fights against this totalitarianism stuff. And the propagandists are American. And while the enemies, again, never explicitly Nazis, they're German in many cases, nonetheless, right? And as a whole, the uh, threat against freedom and democracy serves as this instigator of suspense in these films. But now he moves on to a remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much, the 1934 version, which we thought was pretty good and a good story, a little different than the 1956 version that he comes up with now. Can you talk about the remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much? Yes. So The Man Who Knew Too Much, the the 1956 version, is definitely more lavish production for sure. But I think this, because it was 1956, uh, this is now when communist paranoia has pretty much, not necessarily quite to a head yet, but it's it's definitely present in the United States. And yeah. now Americans need to not worry just about external threats, but they need to worry about internal threats. And this one's odd because it's, Concerned with external threats, but I always interpreted Doris Day's character as someone who is concerned with the internal threat because she's immediately distrustful of the spy Bernard. Yeah. When Jimmy Stewart's like, no, he's he seems great and I have nothing to hide, but she just does not like him from the get-go. And yeah. she ends up being correct, even though Bernard's allegedly for the the good guys she still had every right to be concerned about who he was and what Mm -hmm. he did yeah and to me i saw that as a a support and justification of you need to be worried about your own neighbors now not just Uh a foreign threat but they have infiltrated into our own society And even though it still has that similar theme from the previous version of we're not interested in helping the government, we just want our child back. Yeah, yeah. And that at the end of the day, they still save save the world. There's still this concern of the paranoia. And Doris Day, she's not ridiculed for it. She's ultimately proven right. And... I think that's about as close to uh, as close to a McCarthyist stance that you're going to see in a Hitchcock movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of weird because I mean uh, Bernard, of course, was a French agent and so on, not a U.S. person, but nonetheless, being surrounded by people she didn't know, she did not trust because of the environment now of the world, and Mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of an interesting look at it. from her perspective. So that's that's good. 
Well, and you didn't you didn't know who the politicians, what side they were on, because they never said what country it was. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah, they, you didn't know what was they, going on. Right. Yeah, so they keep it vague. Mm. All right. So keeping it vague, let's go <laughs> to what you said was your favorite Hitchcock movie or Hitchcock spy movie, North by Northwest. Yeah. And in your thesis, you say, quote, this is one of the most politically vague, yet doubles as one of the most scathing towards the American government, mm-hmm. uh, end of quote. So can you talk about that a little bit? So on one hand, it's politically vague because our villains, even though they are definitely villains, they're not really coded as Russian, I, at least I never interpreted it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Mason and Martin Landau, mm-hmm. they're just very odd. <laughs> they're coded as odd, but they're never really considered uh, Russian or uh-huh. Soviet or even Germans. They're very similar to Cary Grant, actually. Like they're at least uh, James Mason is like he's very suave mm-hmm. and almost like another side of the coin that Roger Thornhill is. And that as villains, they are, they're again, never ever said what organization they are affiliated with. Right. You're not really sure, even though we can, we can probably assume at this time they're meant to be Russians or like double agents for the Russians. We're never explicitly told that right but most of the actual conflict is really when Cary Grant and Ava Marie Saint are talking with the counterintelligence agent and he admits to to Thornhill that Ava Marie Saint is is a double agent for them she's she's actually working for them yeah and so yeah. she has to go be with James Mason and Martin Landau because she can feed their secrets to the government, to the American government. And she's absolutely miserable doing this. She doesn't like it, but she, she's kind of accepted her place kind of like uh, Ingrid Bergman in Notorious. She's accepted that this is what's right for the country. But Carrie Grant's thinking, no, 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 (laughs) this, this is absurd. And he challenges the counterintelligence officer on that and saying you're you're utilizing like people's lives just for the sake of of what exactly because they explicitly say cold war in this movie um where i think the line more specifically is war is hell even if it's a cold one yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) that was close to an idea of political allegiances that we can get but the conflict, even though the villains are still our villains and the movie pretty much ends when we see them uh, come to their their deaths, but the American government's certainly not painted in a rosy picture either. Like Roger Thornhill at the end of the day just just wants to get everybody off his back and <laughs> yeah. And eventually, like, he wants to help Ava Marie Saint. He's not really interested in helping the American government. And I I was really intrigued with how this film interpreted that because I don't know if – I'm sure that that has happened, but I'm not really sure if many large blockbuster films from the 1950s would take that kind of stance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that is. Now – after North by Northwest, which is one of our favorites too, we have a two-part episode podcast episode on that. It's it's a great movie from the get-go. Everything about it is just perfect. He moves on, and and he's now moving into some movies, Torn Curtain and Topaz, that probably not all that popular or successful in terms of Hitchcock movies or ones that people pay attention to a lot. But let's talk a little bit about both of those and what your take is on torn curtain if it fits in with any of the other movies and so on so with torn curtain that is one where i think it's it's pretty explicit in because they're in east berlin for a majority of the movie (laughs) east berlin is under communist control so if you're saying east berlin in the movie from 1963 or 1964 yeah it's probably going to assume communism. 
So there, there's like no attempt to really hide that fact. And the the main characters, like they are at constant threat of of communism because they're on the run from the Soviet Union because they have these secrets. And that is really the main thrust of the whole movie is just them trying to escape back into Western society. And even if the movie's not really trying to show Western society as necessarily the best, mm-hmm. it's the better alternative <laughs> because they just, they need to get out. Otherwise they, they will die. And that's, I think where these, the, the 60s movies kind of differ from all the rest. Yeah. They are the, going to be the most explicit yeah. in that regard. Yeah. And yet they still have this threat, just like a little thread of the, the human aspect of it. The human experience is really what matters. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's still a looming threat, and that threat is communism. Yeah. Yeah, you see it in the Funeral in Berlin and the Harry Palmer movies, those early ones in the mid-60s as well. Same kind of thing. Very explicit East Berlin. Boom. Kind of know what they're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that I guess that brings us to the last spy movie that Hitch did. And uh, this one was definitely not his most popular. It's called Topaz. And you comment in your thesis there, again, quote, despite these worthy analyses, however, Topaz, like Hitchcock's espionage thrillers before it, is not confined to one political ideology. And so this has been your theme throughout your thesis. So can you kind of talk about it here on Topaz and then use this to kind of wrap up, you know, are there loose ends in terms of or how you want to kind of wrap up your thoughts on Hitchcock and how politics or lack of politics and social mores weave their way through his espionage movies? Uh, So... Again, it's very explicit, I would say. Again, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but I don't think they ever outright say communism. But I do remember that it is, they're frequently (laughs) globetrotting. And so you end up in Cuba at one point, and it's set during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so they don't need to outright say, this character is a communist, this Mm -hmm. character is... Uh, a capitalist but it's just still textual at the at the end of the day but the political intrigue again is more foundational to the actual story and one one instance that always struck me was how the main female character she gets killed because she was the lover of the main character who is a French spy, but she was also the lover of the the Cuban insurrectionists and the Cuban insurrectionist leader who is definitely not Fidel Castro. He kills her, but not because she's actually part of the Western world, but because he bet- she betrayed him as, as a lover, and that's what ultimately gets her killed. And then... The, the weird thing about Topaz is that it has, like, three different endings. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't remember, but I think the ending that I got is the one that I talk about in the thesis, where the main villain, he commits suicide. But even though that's a win, so to speak, and then it, it like, superimposes with Cuban Missile Crisis is over and a headline there's a montage of all the people that have died. Mm-hmm. And to me, I always interpreted that as, yes, this political moment has passed, but at what cost? And it's showing people from both sides to show that at the end of the day, this is a human concern, not just a political one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Has these ideas of more explicit political themes but they're never quite the main thrust. They're always just there to add tension rather than so show support for one side or the other. Okay, cool. We've gone through all of the movies here. Now, one thing I don't think we did, Dan, at the beginning is the name of your thesis is called 
Sounds like a spy story. The espionage thrillers of Alfred Hitchcock in the 20th century English and American society. From The Man Who Knew Too Much, 1934, to Topaz, 1969. So if you search for Sounds Like a Spy Story, you can probably find the thesis. Yeah. And it is a really good read. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, it's a terrific read. We enjoyed it so much we wanted to talk to you. So. Yes, thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, this is great. So, so Kim, you wrote this thesis seven years ago. So, now I don't know if you've gone back to these movies at all. I mean, has anything changed in your mind about what you wrote in the thesis other than you said you might put sabotage in there if you, if you had more room to be able to put it in? I don't think anything has really changed. I... If anything, I, I still stand by pretty much everything I've written. I've never really kind of backtracked. and was like, well, I might have like read a little too much into that. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, Hitchcock is what he was, a storyteller, and that was his main interest in life. Mm-hmm. And based on all of my research then and occasional research now, he just never really made any political allegiances known. And so we can probably guess what they were because he was British and he moved to the United States. So we can assume, but he never really fancied himself an activist. And so I just never saw it as these movies need to be viewed as propaganda pieces. They they come close at times, but they're never really at that level it like it's not like Casablanca which i think we can pretty much interpret as a anti-german propaganda piece mm-hmm. even though it's a phenomenal movie yes. at the end of the day it it was meant to just be a, a propaganda piece it just happened to do really well yeah. and it it still it still goes hard today like i showed it to my husband a few months ago he had never seen it before and he loved it like he Casablanca he was, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, that's a great movie. I think it might so, be my all-time favorite movie. <laughs> he was, like, really into it. And I, I did have to explain to him the, the Vichy water scene at the very end. He, <laughs> yeah. he didn't know that. Yeah, and I was okay. like, oh, you didn't know that? Um, but so something like that, you know, I would say is almost very explicitly meant to be propaganda. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Hitchcock movies, even at their closest, are not quite there and i i certainly still see a lot of that when i do go back to some of these movies i still stand by everything i've written ultimately hitchcock just he he was good at storytelling he knew what he wanted to do and that was ultimately what he was interested in yeah 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 what are you doing now, uh, by the way? Currently, I am working on my master's in history at Old Dominion University. Oh, wow. But I actually have a podcast of my own. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. A friend and I started it earlier this year, and we watch movies that have been based on historic events and people, and we try to determine what is historically inaccurate and okay. like how does that serve the story if that's like a good decision or or not what's that, the name of the show yeah it's called as told by hollywood told by hollywood okay it's on uh anchor and spotify right now all right thanks a lot kim this has been terrific a lot of fun talking really to you has. we appreciate yeah. it if people want to get a hold of you or find you where can they look you can uh, check out our podcast, As Told by Hollywood, and that is on Instagram at As Told by Hollywood, and it's on Spotify and Anchor. Terrific. That's great. We'll take a look at it, too, and take a listen. All right. That's a wrap. Tom and I ask you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too, and YouTube. And please subscribe to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, through your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.